0: This week on That Got Me Thinking, I've been thinking about skepticism. I've got a great bumper sticker that reads, Don't Believe Everything You Think. And that got me thinking about discernible truths, being open minded, certainty, faith, intuition, science, beliefs, trust, and empirical evidence. How is it that we determine what to believe and when to let those beliefs go? And is being a skeptic an optimistic or pessimistic approach? Join us today on That Got Me Thinking.
1: when they jumpin jumping over hurdles slowing verbs like a turtle murky fool, like swirling cake gold cold blood is with the sproms i'm a boss flip the coin toss this draws some out of law all sound my brains get busted slinging letters in couplets mock up the subjects paragraph the punch
0: this is that got me thinking i'm Ellie Newman and my guest today is Adam Van Langenberg Adam is a maths teacher and born again skeptic we're talking to Adam from Melbourne Australia Adam thank you so much for joining us today
1: No worries, thanks for having me.
0: So I want to start with a very basic definition of skepticism that I pulled off the web. A skeptical attitude, doubt as to the truth of something, those claims were treated with skepticism. Uh, Synonyms, doubt, doubtfulness, a pinch of salt. And then the philosophy of skepticism, the theory that certain knowledge is impossible. And it goes on further to talk about generally an attitude of questioning towards unempirical knowledge or opinions and beliefs. And that it's often separated into various categories, which I want to dive a little deeper into the show later on, the the various categories of skepticism. But I want to start with what you said, born again skeptic. So maybe you didn't come that way. I'm wondering what led you to define yourself as a skeptic.
1: Sure, well, what, um, obviously, born again skeptics, just me being a little bit tongue in cheek, but I was uh, raised in a very um, uh, a strong Baptist church. Uh, so I was religious for probably until I was about 16 years old. And I was never, you know, that much of a believer in other things, but I sort of kind of assumed that ghosts must be real and psychics must be real and that type of thing. And then,
0: and, and I'm going to stop you there. Why? Why did you assume that they must be real? Was it because there was some authority telling you that these things existed, or because there was consensus? What was it that that you think led you to believe? Well, they must be real.
1: Well, I think actually, you know what? Probably rather than they must be real, it was more the idea that I couldn't think of a reason why they wouldn't be. And I mean, as as I said, I was quite religious um, for the first few years of my life, so being religious means I believe in an afterlife, you know, I believed in heaven and hell. And so to me, the idea that there could be ghosts didn't seem that far-fetched. I mean, if if somebody had a soul and could go, die and go up to heaven, then why couldn't some people be stuck on earth? So it sort of, it, it just seemed obvious in a way.
0: And it was in alignment with the other beliefs that you held. And would you say those were more beliefs based on just pure faith rather than any empirical data?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, you know, never had any experience that I would have said, you know, oh, that must have been a ghost. Um, in, in fact, I always hoped that I would never have anything like that because it sounded terrifying to me. But um, it, it just seemed to fit. And it certainly wasn't anything I was taught. You know, my my church never never spoke about ghosts and never spoke about psychics or anything like that. But it just seems seemed like something that may as well be true.
0: And had you ever had any personal experience with any psychics or with any sort of psychic experience yourself as a, a child or a young adult?
1: No, not really. I, I mean, I was always interested in it. I remember borrowing a couple of books from the library um, and, you know, trying it out on my parents while they, you know, just very tolerantly and patiently sat back and listened to me waffle on a bit. Um, I thought numerology was kind of cool when I was a bit younger, you know, having an interest in maths and the idea that you could do fortune telling with maths. I sort of really liked that idea. Um, but it always conflicted with me a little bit because I thought, oh, is this, is this evil? Because I remember in church them talking about, you know, black magic and the evils of that. So I remember once having a conversation with my dad and asking him if there are any, any fortune telling things that were Okay. Uh, you know any sort of white magic that it would be okay to use
0: and and were there are there in the, the baptist religion or is that completely unacceptable
1: uh, i i would guess completely unacceptable i think my uh my dad didn't really have an answer for me there and i never got the courage to ask any of the ministers about it i, I think that would have been very polite and just said look no why don't you yeah. stay <laughs> <that> <laughs> See,
0: just better that whole category put that away
1: yeah, and yeah, and where
0: do you think intuitive experience or intuition would fit with you in connection with a psychic experience? Have you had experiences where you just felt intuitively that you should take an umbrella even though the, the weather said it was going to be clear or, or something like that or that someone was going to call and they rang up?
1: Yeah, well, sure. I mean, everybody's had those types of experiences. Um But there's nothing uh, sort of supernatural or mysterious about intuition. It's just we, you know, there are lots of things going on that maybe subconsciously we are aware of. Um, You know, walking outside and deciding you might need to take an umbrella. Maybe that's just because you've noticed something that suggests it might rain or maybe you're just a bit of a pessimist and you got lucky that one time. And the whole thing where people ring and you know who is ringing in advance, that that kind of happens to everybody. And one, um, it's, it's actually a really interesting point. There's a, a concept called um, oh, just um, uh, confirmation bias, sorry mm-hmm. con- confirmation bias, which is where if there's something that you believe, you will tend to remember the hits rather than the misses. So if you believe that you can sometimes psychically predict who's going to call you on the phone, you're much more likely to, to remember the times you're correct. Than the times that you're incorrect. So if you, you know, if you twenty times hear the phone ringing and think, oh, that must be such and such, if you're correct three out of those twenty times, you're going to remember the three times and not going to remember the other seventeen misses. So in your mind, you're actually doing it a lot more than you really are, and that's that's just a part of human psychology. That's something that everybody does, you know, from the most hardcore believers to the most hardcore skeptics.
0: So there's some reason that we remember those moments where our intuition was right rather than when it was wrong. So then what was the shift to you you left the church sometime around 16? Was that the beginning of your path to becoming a skeptic?
1: Um, Look, maybe. Maybe it was. I I didn't really leave the church because I stopped believing in anything. I left the church more because I started to realize that um, the other people in the church weren't any different... To everybody else, my church was fairly strict, and I remember growing up with this belief that um you know atheists were evil, they were the they were the worst people in the world, and you shouldn't um you know not to trust them and uh, be careful with what they say. And then as I grow older and you know started to make more friends and friends at primary school and friends at high school, both uh, religious people and atheists as well, and I started to notice that there's no difference. There are just as many. Uh, friendly atheists as there are unfriendly Christians. And I think that sort of started to disillusion me a little bit because I'd always had this idea growing up that people that went to church were better people. And then if you went to church, you were a nice person. And if you didn't go to church, you were a bad person. And then once I started to realize that that wasn't the case, um, it just kind of made me a little bit less impressed with the whole organization
0: so let's talk a little bit about the different categories of skepticism and since we're talking a little bit about religious skepticism um, and, and there seem to be sort of two areas of that. One in a doubt in basic religious principles and then the other which you just mentioned a skepticism of any religious beliefs and practices that are different from your
1: own. Mm. Yeah, okay. So I mean the, the second one that you mentioned like. I almost feel like most churches would have that, that idea that our church is the correct church and that any other church is wrong. But there are always, you know, there are always differing levels of it. I've known people whose attitude is exactly that. My church is the correct church and anybody who goes to a different church is going to hell because they're doing the wrong thing, even if they're both, you know, they might be uh, two different Protestant Christian churches. Um, but one of them Baptist and one of them's Church of Christ, and they go, no, 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 you've got this subtle little bit of information wrong, therefore your entire way of life and beliefs is wrong. I mean, that's, that's fairly extreme. I also know plenty of other people whose beliefs is just, no, the church that I go to is the church that's right for me.
0: All right, we're going to put religious skepticism on hold for a minute, because towards the end of the show, I want to talk a little bit about the compatibility of faith and skepticism. So we'll we'll, we'll come back around to the basic idea of of religious skepticism and and atheism. When you started to become more of a skeptic, have you dove into the history of skepticism at all?
1: Uh, Only only very lightly. Um, I mean, skepticism's been uh, sort of a philosophical idea for thousands of years. You know, it's certainly not a new idea. Um, it just may be sort of recently that it's become a lot more of an acceptable thing because, you know, if you think back a hundred years ago or so, walking around saying that you don't believe in God or you don't believe in various other things um, would have been a lot more socially unaccepted. Um, and compared
0: dangerous, to, right, uh, for a long, long time of history.
1: Yeah, abso- um, I mean, absolutely. There were, you know, periods of history where if you weren't religious, you're going to get murdered.
0: Um, and again, if you didn't have the uh, popular religion for that particular culture as well, right? So, so the both forms of of religious skepticism were in play. As far as you better keep quiet, <laughs> your life your life is in danger.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: And so, would you say that your focus of skepticism would be primarily uh, centered on scientific skepticism about testing beliefs' reliability and sort of systematic investigation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, what. What you were saying at the start uh, where you were talking about some definitions of um, uh, skepticism and there were sort of two, two things that I picked up on that. One was the idea of doubt and the sort of native state of doubting things, which I suppose in some ways is correct, although it does have a bit of a negative um, connotation to it. And I think that's one, one sort of marketing issue that um, us skeptics have is that the word skeptic in a lot of people's minds is the same as cynic.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about that and about whether or not pessimist or optimist, and really more accurately, cynic, and look, how that may be inaccurate.
1: It, it is completely inaccurate because what I, a lot of people seem to think is that if you, you know, we're close-minded. A skeptic is a person who's close-minded, who doesn't um, doesn't believe in anything, and is sort of miserable, can't experience the joy and the beauty in life, which is just simply not true. There are plenty of things in life to find joyous, and there's so much beauty in the world without needing to dive into uh, ghosts and psychics and things like that. There's there's so much amazing stuff out there. Uh, the idea that um, if you really start to understand something, then how can you appreciate the beauty of it? You know, I've heard people use the argument when they're, they're stargazing, for example, and they just want to sit back and, you know, enjoy the beauty of the stars, but then they also have this belief that if you start to understand you know, the formative process of a star and the life cycle of a star and what's going on at a molecular level in the star, then how can you possibly appreciate the beauty? Whereas I would argue that, at least in my case and a lot of other people I know, that enhances the beauty. If in any way it makes it more mysterious, knowing just a little bit about something can often make you realise just how much you don't know about the the entire concept.
0: Well, and you're making me think even in art appreciation – when you understand a little historical perspective of the artist's personal experience or that particular time of art and how their style fit in with the arts of the time, you can have a much deeper appreciation aesthetically of what you're looking at or experiencing.
1: Yeah, yeah that, that's that's an excellent point, actually. That's a really excellent point, which I'm going to steal from you and use in our future conversations. I, I went to an art gallery a couple of years ago with a very good friend of mine who's an art teacher, and I don't know anything about art. I, you know, wander around and go, okay, that's a pretty picture, that's not a pretty picture, that's about as far as I get. But uh, this friend of mine, of course, had been studying art for decades, so as we're walking around looking at things, she's she's pointing out elements in each painting. And she's telling me a bit about the artist's history and sort of why he would have done this. And this is what he painted at the start of his career. And this is what he painted at the end of his career. And that extra bit of knowledge really sort of opened my eyes a little bit. And I found that I was getting a lot more out of what I was seeing.
0: Well, I'm thinking as well as historical information and and education, that if you Go to a Greek and you're looking at the ruins. They aren't going to be very interesting, um, probably from even an aesthetic level for very long. But if you understand the history, the factual history, and then the mythology connected with it, you can experience at a completely different level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And I, I read today one podcast host had said that her um, introduction to science and her love of science made her realize she would never be bored again because the idea that there was so much to learn and to, to understand happening in science and the universe.
1: Yeah, and you, and you know what, that idea that there's still so much to learn sort of comes back to the concept of open and closed-mindedness, I think, where c- closed-minded is definitely something I've been accused of before, because there's sort of this idea that an open-minded person accepts everything and a closed-minded person doesn't believe in anything. But the way I like to think about it is that an open-minded person um, considers every viewpoint, thinks about everything properly, and then makes decisions based on the evidence, whereas a closed-minded person has got their own beliefs, and that's what they're sticking to. Well, and and I-
0: they're also threatened by other people's belief or any divergent belief as well, right, whereas someone that is more open-minded is, is more comfortable with appreciating and understanding where another person is coming from, even if they don't
1: agree. Yeah, yeah correct, correct. But part, part of it as well is um, considering the evidence. And this is, to me, evidence is the biggest part of scepticism. It's about saying, okay, is, you know, is this thing actually true? Let's consider the evidence for it. So if somebody said to me, you know, do you believe in psychics, for example? I would say, well, consider what the evidence says. Is there any evidence for belief in psychics or, you know, for psychic powers and at this stage no there isn't so that's that's what i'm going to go along with and people would say that that's closed minded but i think that's being open minded because you're you're actually considering all aspects you're saying let's look at the evidence in support of psychic powers let's look at the evidence against psychic powers and just weigh the two see which two is uh is stronger and if you're a true
0: skeptic are you putting a placeholder there are you willing to if evidence changes in the future to reopen your opinion on that if there was then some empirical evidence as to psychic ability or or some scientific
1: proof yes yeah 100 percent. that's what skepticism is about it's about Um, these beliefs, and I, I suppose belief is kind of the wrong word, but these beliefs all hinge around evidence. At the moment in my life, there is no evidence of psychic ability, so that's what I'm going to accept as the truth. If later on down the track some evidence comes out suggesting that psychic abilities are real, then I'm going to change my opinion on that. But what you have to be careful about is also the strength of the evidence For somebody to come along and convince me that they had psychic powers, because that would go against so much evidence, they're going to need to show me something pretty amazing. You know, just being able to say the phone rang the other day and I knew who it was going to be, that's not going to be strong enough. You think about, um, say, for example, the theory of evolution. Okay, could somebody come along and disprove that? Yes, of course somebody could, but there's so much evidence supporting evolution that to disprove it would require you know an even greater amounts
0: so one of the aspects of philosophical skepticism that that i read about was that a skeptic may even doubt the reliability of their own senses would that be something that you you would draw the line there or, or not
1: no that well that's that's a really tricky one it is and- a tricky one It is absolutely true that your own senses are a lot more infallible, uh, sorry, a lot more fallible than you realize. Um, But it's very, very hard to convince a person of that, and it's very hard to convince yourself of that. If you've seen something, then how are you, you know, why would you not accept that as being the truth? Or if you've heard something or felt something, why would you accept that that isn't the case? But the more you look into it, your senses, the more you realize that they are easy, easy to be fooled. I mean, you think about optical illusions as a really simple example. You can look at an optical illusion and straight away go, okay, what my brain is interpreting this as is not what I'm actually seeing. So once you start to realize that and start to accept that, then, you know, it's a bit of, a, it's a bit of the, the start of a path down to realizing, look, maybe there are other things that I've seen or I think I've seen or think I've felt that aren't actually true. There's a great example of um, a thing called sleep paralysis, which is a, an issue some people have where when you go to sleep normally, your brain will paralyze your body just so that you don't start acting out your dreams and start running around and getting out of bed while you're still asleep. But what can happen to some people is that they will wake up during the night, but their brain, for whatever reason, keeps them paralyzed. So they're lying in bed, they can't move. And for some reason, some weird quirk of the human brain, it's often associated with a feeling that there's a presence in the room. And it's usually a malevolent presence. So what can happen is you can wake up in the middle of the night, unable to move, completely convinced that there's some dangerous or evil person in your room. Now, how are you going to convince somebody that really believes that that didn't actually happen because they're feeling it? They're actually experiencing that sensation.
0: Well, that's the second aspect, right? One is interpretation, that your brain takes what it it experiences and then interprets, and it also fills in the holes. They've just done a lot of research on that lately, the much more um, percentage than they had thought prior to being able to do brain mapping of the filling in of the story. And so if that's true, if we can't trust our senses, I would think that for many that would be something people wouldn't want to believe because that wouldn't feel very secure.
1: Yeah ex- exa- exactly right. So, we, so we, how
0: does it feel to you and the rest of the skeptics? How do you settle with that?
1: <laughs> we we just accept that it's true and try to work around it as best we can. I mean this is an, when it comes to not trusting your senses we're really talking about the extremes. Anyway, it's not like we walk around and go oh there's a you know I'm crossing the road there's a car coming towards me but what if my brain is just tricking me I'll just walk across anyway. It's not at that level it's just you know at the subtle at the subtle little things where that comes into though where not wanting to trust yourself um, comes into is often starting to consider the difference between anecdotal evidence and empirical evidence and that I find is one of the most difficult things to get across and the difficult um, difficult ideas to convince a person is that somebody's individual anecdotal experience isn't isn't relevant, and I, I know that sounds harsh, it, you know, you, it sort of sounds like a horrible thing to say to a person, your experience doesn't count. But for one person to say, I saw a ghost, that doesn't really mean anything in the scheme of things. But if thousands of people you know, all in the, having the exact same experience, that's something a little bit different. Um, a classic example of this is the vaccination debate which is something that's going on in Australia, Um, you know, unfortunately, where there's a large group of people who believe that vaccinations are bad and they believe that vaccinations are giving their kids autism, vaccinations are making their kids sick. And a lot of their beliefs come from is just something that has happened to them. I took my child to get vaccinated, they got sick within a couple of days, or I took my child to get vaccinated and a week later they were diagnosed with autism. And you can say to a person in that situation, "That's just your one experience." If you go and look at all of the research that's been done, and you study the thousands and thousands and thousands of cases, there's no link between the two. But try saying that to somebody who's, you know, whose child has just been diagnosed with autism. There's this real, real belief that anything that happens to you must be how you perceived it as, and it's it's very hard. Um, to accept the fact that maybe what you believe so strongly is wrong. And and that's something that that applies to everybody, even myself as a sceptic. If there's something that's happened to me that I know isn't how I perceived it, it's very, very difficult to look at it in that way.
0: Do you think that's connected with a sort of cultural bias, I know in the States, I don't know about Australia, but sort of against science and that science has never got the... Universal acceptance is something that everyone should understand and be educated on and understand scientific method beyond maybe your 7th grade science class and that we don't tend to look at the world scientifically and the idea too that, that people are positional so you're either for vaccinations or you're against them and then once you've taken that position you're adding up all your anecdotal or any empirical evidence that does exist to back up your position rather than saying alright maybe vaccines are great but maybe the timing isn't perfect or maybe they need to do a little more research and development these companies aren't motivated to make the best vaccines they can and that sort of thing that that people get swung to one one position or another
1: yeah, very, very often, and it it can be very very difficult once a person is in one of those strong positions, um, for them to shift. I mean, I imagine it would be as difficult to convince a hardcore anti-vaxxer that vaccines are safe. It'd be as difficult to convince a you know scientist that vaccines are dangerous. The people who were sort of in the middle, well, you know, people who were sitting on the fence. I think we find that they they tend to be the people that you can have more success with talking to because it's when you're sitting on the fence of an issue, you haven't invested, I suppose you haven't invested any of your own ego into it. And ego is a really important aspect when it comes to these types of things because you've got to be able to get a really good handle on it and you've got to be strong enough and confident enough to accept when you're wrong, which is a really, really difficult thing to do. And when you've invested yourself so strongly in a belief, especially if you've invested yourself publicly in a belief, it's very, very difficult to then turn around and say, I was wrong. And I mean, we see cases of this. There was a a woman recently who I think had seven children and, and she didn't vaccinate her children until all of them got, I think all of them got the measles or whooping cough at the same time. And, that, and then she turned around and changed her mind and went, okay, maybe maybe there's something in vaccines. But these are the exceptions rather than the rules. The, the more strongly you believe in something, the harder it is to turn around and change your belief because not only do you have to admit to yourself that you are wrong, it usually involves admitting to your friends and family that you were wrong as well.
0: So let's talk a little bit about critical thinking and critical analysis and the skeptic school. And I'm guessing that the reason for you having started the Skeptic School was to focus and teach critical thinking and empirical evidence gathering and scientific thought. So how did the Skeptic School come about?
1: Uh, I I don't remember exactly what it was that made me decide to do it. I think it was probably just because there was nothing like that going on at my school at the time. Um, and I thought it was something that I was interested in and I, something I thought that the kids... Uh, could benefit benefit from one one thing i had actually noticed was i think you guys had these in america as well and in fact you may still do you have these items called power balance bands do you know about those okay they're sort of a a rubber bracelet with a little hologram in it and the idea is that if you wear one of these bracelets they make you stronger more flexible um, and better balanced and, and you would see athletes on TV wearing them and celebrities wearing on wearing them. And I noticed that a lot of kids and a few of the teachers as well at school were wearing these bands. I didn't really know what they were. And until some of
0: them, I think, were connected with the, the ions, negative ions or positive ions.
1: Yeah, possibly, possibly. I, I mean, negative ions is sort of one of those words. <laughs> yeah, I thought, right I thought that might
0: get you going.
1: <laughs> a, lot, a lot, yeah. Anytime you see the word negative ions, energy field or quantum, you should always... Uh, start doubting what they're talking about uh, immediately, I think, just to be safe. But I realized that a lot of these kids were wearing these power balance bands, and I you know, found out that they are about $60 each. And I saw a demonstration of how people convince you that they work. And what would happen is you'd walk into a shopping center, and somebody would have one, and they would do these tests where they'd get you to stand on one leg and stick your arms out to the side, and they'd push your arm down, and you would topple over. And then they'd put the band over your wrist push you down push your arm down again and this time you could resist it and what i discovered was that it was just a series of old almost old circus tricks that they were doing if you stand on one leg stick your arms out and then get somebody to push your wrist on the side of your body with the raised leg if you get your wrist pushed directly down towards the ground you're going to fall but if somebody pushes your wrist and angles the direction of that push towards your feet, you're going to stand. You're going to remain standing, and that's what these people were doing. They were just doing these uh, these tricks. And so one day I went into class and I noticed a few kids were wearing them. And I did that demonstration. I showed them how they worked and that it was um, all a fake. And it, it actually had an amazing 100 percent success rate. Every kid in the class stopped wearing them and sort of. A few of them started coming up with justifications for why they had them. One kid told me he found it in the gutter. Um, he didn't believe in it. I just found it in the gutter and thought it would look cool. And it just got so popular, that demonstration, that I thought that, you know, maybe there are more things I could do with this. So started running a club at lunchtimes where we discussed the power balance bands and and psychics and astrology and ghosts and actually started doing a few little experiments as well. There's a, there's a fantastic thing you can do, and it's really, really simple, a way of looking at astrology and how each of the star signs has a particular descriptor. You know, if I'm, I'm a Sagittarius, so it sort of means I'm hot-tempered and impulsive and a bit, a bit flighty. But what you can do with this experiment is you get the descriptors of all 12 star signs, and you print them out, but you don't say which particular star sign it is. And what I did was have them around the room, so they had these 12 signs that described a star sign but didn't say what it was, and the children had to go around, read them all, and pick which one described them the most. And that in itself was interesting because within a couple of minutes you've got kids saying, hang on, but those three all describe me, which which straight away gets them thinking about, you know, how valid can star signs really be. And then at the end, once all of them have chosen one, we go through and look at how many... Um, how many of them were accurate. And it was amazing because we did it with 36 kids. And if astrology is not accurate and if it was just pure chance, then you would expect one out of 12, or in this case, three out of 36 kids to get it right. And that's exactly what happened. Three students picked the right star sign, 33 students picked the wrong one. And every time I've repeated this experiment, it's been the exact same thing. Around one in 12 kids gets it right, everybody else gets it wrong.
0: All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I'm talking to Adam Van Langenberg. We're talking about skepticism and the skeptic school that he began in Australia with his high school class. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5. Catch them. All right, we're back. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm here with Adam van Langenberg, and we are talking about skepticism. So, Adam, at that point when you started the club and um, started holding meetings, was this something that you identified with at that point? Did you identify yourself as a skeptic? Were you in in skeptic clubs? Was it something that you had taken on as part of who you were?
1: Yeah, by, by that stage, absolutely um what it what had happened was a few years prior to that a friend of mine had put me in touch or put me onto a podcast called the skeptics guide to the universe and i uh started downloading it and started listening to the episodes and uh, what the show is is a group of five people who uh sit down and each episode was about an hour and a quarter hour to 20 minutes long and they would talk about skepticism they talk about current events what you know what's going on in the world they would sort of discuss their own ideas and very slowly i'm a bit ashamed to admit very very slowly my thinking started to shift and i started to become more and more of a skeptic as time went on until i eventually got to a point where i realized oh yeah i'm i'm a skeptic that's uh that's what i am and it you know it sort of it, it felt right it, it it felt much more correct than anything else I'd done before so I wanted to I wanted to get that idea out there and I wanted to get people thinking about actually actively thinking about skepticism rather than just you know some things I believe in and some things I don't believe in I wanted to get the idea of this is how to be a skeptic and this is this is how you can approach thinking about things in your life
0: and and why is it important? Why does it matter to you if the kids are wearing the bracelets and and thinking it makes them stronger when in fact it may not empirically do so?
1: Well, I think part part of it is just because, um, you know, one they're children, and and that's what it, that's what got me got me the start. If you hear of an adult wearing things like that, you can kind of go, you know, okay, they're they're adult. If they if they want to spend their money on it, fine. Um, but these are twelve and thirteen year olds that are getting basically getting conned by people, and and it, it, that actually angered me. The idea that they were being conned because the people selling these bracelets weren't selling them from a legitimate belief. I mean, if you if you go and visit a psychic, chances are that psychic believes in what they're doing. So even though I think that what they're doing is wrong, they're not doing. They're, they're not doing a bad thing. They're not deliberately trying to con people. They're probably what doing what they're doing from a genuine place. Whereas the people selling these power balance bands knew for a fact that what they were doing was wrong because the people giving the demonstrations were being taught these tricks. They were being basically told to deceive people with those tricks. And I didn't like the idea of my students uh, being caught up in that type of scam. And also I think it's, I, I mean, in general, it's just, it's just better to approach life with a, a little bit of a sense of doubt and just actually stop and think about things and consider the evidence and, and think to yourself, is this actually true? Do I believe it's true just because I want it to be true? Which is a very big deal as well. A lot of the times, if there's something we want to be true, we're much more likely to believe in it. We're much more likely to consider it. And I will put my hand up and meet that I'm exactly the same. If I see a headline of an article that supports something I believe in, i, I and I'm, I'm a bit ashamed to admit this, I'm much more likely to want to go and read that article. But if I see something that is contrary to what I believe, my immediate response is, oh, that's rubbish, I'm not even going to bother. So I've almost got to force myself to say, you know, no, no, even though I don't, believe, I don't agree with this article, I'm going to go and read it anyway, because you never know. It, it may just turn out that I was wrong all along. And that's something that, that actually happens to me a lot. You know, it's every couple of weeks something will crop up and I'll go, oh, okay, I always thought that was true, but I guess I was wrong.
0: And it's interesting to think about the relationship of faith um, and also self-identity with that. I was thinking of Amy Cuddy's research on the power pose. She's a professor out of Harvard University and had done some research on the power pose and the power mm. posing for two minutes a day and how that would change not only your perception of yourself but then others perception of you and also have endocrinological differences um, for just those two minutes of power posing and what was released in your body so what would be your initial reaction to that and is there a, a skeptic take on the mind body relationship and that continuum and the effect of the mind on body and health
1: Sure. I mean, I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence. I, I mean, there's there's bucket loads of evidence to suggest that you know the what you what you think internally can have a physiological reaction. There's sort of no reason to immediately assume all of that stuff is wrong. Um, I'm familiar with what you're talking about. I think she did a TED talk, which I remember watching. And I, I mean, from my point of view, I'm I'm not a psychologist um, or or a, or a scientist even, but. From my point of view, there was nothing in it that seemed false. If she'd started saying things like when you do a power pose, you know, the universe uh, empowers you, with, you know, with positive thinking and stuff like that, then I'd be going, okay, that, that sounds a little bit fishy. But if she's saying we did scientific tests and we, you know, monitored hormone levels and so forth and found that there were these actual physiological responses in people who did these power poses. Well, that sounds, I mean, that sounds completely legitimate. I have tried that as well, a few little things like that. I'm I'm a piano player and I get very nervous when I perform. So when I heard about these power poses, I started doing them before a performance. And uh, another little psychological trick I came across which was instead of telling yourself how nervous you're feeling, you tell yourself how excited you're feeling. And the idea is that it kind of, you've still got the, that adrenaline going through your body, but your brain starts interpreting it as excitement rather than nervous energy. Now, I don't know how solid that is. I've tried it myself and it seemed to work for me. But like I was saying before, that's purely anecdotal. If in the future more evidence comes out that suggests that there's nothing to it, then. You know then there's nothing to it and possibly what happened was I was just convincing myself that, um it worked there's there are a lot of cases where there's something that looks like it's it's solid and there's a lot of evidence behind it and then somebody will come along and show that maybe that was true one thing I heard about recently was uh, this thing called seasonal affective disorder where people are meant to exhibit more depressive symptoms in the colder and in the darker months when the days are shorter and that's been something that we've sort of accepted as truth for a long time. And there were people could get light therapy uh, to try to help them deal with that. But there was a recent fairly large study done that actually suggested that there is no difference um, during the times of year for depressive symptoms. It's pretty flat across the board. So does does that mean that we have to throw out everything else we've believed? It doesn't, but it just means we have to start looking a bit more carefully into it. And maybe In the future, it will turn out that we were wrong. And if we're wrong, it just means we've got to change the way we think. You know, there's no embarrassment with that. There's no shame or anything. All we can do as people is look at the evidence, get as much evidence as we can, interpret that evidence as best as we can, and then live our lives and make our decisions according to what that evidence suggests. And if it turns out in the future that we were wrong, well, you know, so what? So we were wrong. We take in the new evidence and then we just adjust our thoughts and we adjust our behaviours.
0: I was going to ask you about a film that I I think you just answered. It's What the Bleep Do We Know? And it, it sort of goes through science and pokes at all of the things that we used to believe were so. I mean, it is a film about metaphysics and it's saying, okay, scientifically we used to think this and then now that's proven not to be right and then we thought this and that isn't right. And then makes the leap to paranormal activity. And I'm wondering for a true skeptic, is the door even open to that, that in the future that it might be proven that there is some empirical data to show that there is another realm operating that at this point we haven't proven, but that we could later understand that it wasn't this sort of woo-woo thing, but there, there was this scientifically operating phenomenon that we didn't understand prior.
1: Yeah, of, of course, absolutely. We must be open-minded, and we must be willing to accept that what we what we know is wrong. But at the same time, we can't we can't really be wishy washy with it. We have to just look at what we've got at the moment. At the moment, the evidence says, or the evidence suggests, there is no supernatural realm. There's nothing like that. It's you know, it's all in our imaginations. If enough evidence came forward suggesting that that was true then, you know, of course we're going to change our minds on that. We're going to feel pretty embarrassed. We're probably going to have people making fun of us. But, you know, that's that's part of being wrong. That's, that's just part of it. So if enough evidence comes forward to convince us that something that we believed in is actually wrong, then, yeah, we, we're going to change our minds.
0: Well, this doesn't seem like there's any need for embarrassment even because you aren't taking – a black and white stance saying this doesn't exist. You're just saying there isn't evidence at this point to prove that this exists. So for now, we're saying no. And I, I just before we did this interview, I was listening to NPR and they were talking about the discovery of the gravitational waves. Yeah. And in science, this happens all the time, right? The idea of this came out with Weber in the 1960s, and, you know, everyone was giving him a hard time, and there was no evidence for it, and it was sort of theory, and he was going on faith. And for the next, what's it been, 55 years, um, there is this combination within science of having to have faith in this idea that hasn't been proven yet.
1: Sure, although I think a a lot of people would say that faith is almost the wrong word, but So so what
0: word would you use? Because I wondered about that. I thought, okay, he's not going to like the word faith.
1: (laughs) No, it's it's not about not liking the word faith. I I mean, I I can't really think of a better word. But if you're a a scientist who has an idea like that is not going to be basing that idea on faith, they're not going to be just going, I think this is true. They're going to be going, the evidence that I have makes me think that this is a possibility. Now, I'm, I mean, scientists are human, you know. Every, but then the other
0: the other scientists aren't um, often thinking that that's so, right? That particular scientist's interpretation of some data or some evidence, but he's, there is a leap there.
1: Yeah, look, there, there is a leap, and it may turn out that, you know, a, a scientist who has a particular idea only has a very flimsy bit of evidence, and most of the evidence suggests that that scientist is actually wrong. But... It's still it's still not based purely on on faith alone, and e- even if the chances of that scientist being correct are slim, it's still a chance that has to be taken. I mean, imagine if throughout history every single scientist who had ever been told that their ideas were silly just ended up abandoning them, we'd be a lot further behind than we are now. So it it it's a really difficult balance to take between. Um, you know, just purely looking at the evidence only and then actually, you know, thinking to yourself, well, maybe there is a chance, a chance of this. But the fact is, if there's something that there's not much evidence for, but you still kind of believe in it, you've got to look for that evidence. You've still got to look for that evidence. um, Rather than running around saying, I am true, I am true. It's about running around and saying, look, I think that I'm true. But I don't have any evidence to back that up, so I'm still searching. A, a great example of that is Isaac Newton, who, you know, most people know, one of the greatest scientists in history. He believed very strongly in alchemy. And, but the problem was he was never able to prove it. He was never able to actually find any evidence that alchemy worked. And to his credit, he accepted that. He never ran around saying, alchemy works. Alchemy works. He just said, I think it works. I feel that it works, but I haven't yet managed to prove it. And I think what a lot of other people would have done in those situations where if they believe something, but they experiment and they discover that they're wrong, they will either misinterpret the data or outright lie about the data. They will do something to make themselves look correct. Whereas Isaac Newton just sort of put his hands up and said, I think I'm right but I don't have any evidence to back it up. So that's just, you know, what, what am I going to do about that?
0: So the issue for the skeptic seems to be calling something true or a truth without having the evidence to back it up.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's words like truth and belief are kind of, they're iffy words. What The, the way I like to think of it as, is as there is enough evidence suggesting that this is correct, so I'm going to live my life assuming that that is correct, and if that evidence turns out to be wrong, or if some, if more, if stronger contrary evidence comes up, then I will change the way I live my life to that effect.
0: So it's sort of a, a bailiwick and then a tuning fork for a living, to sort of say this is the way I'm going to approach my life and and how I'm going to make decisions on all the things I have to make decisions about now and going forward. Is that, yeah, is that yeah. what you're giving to the kids, do you feel?
1: Yeah, actually. Some sort a tune, of a compass? I, I like the word tuning fork there. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, a compass and a tuning fork. And these, I, I mean, these are types of things, you know, this, the, the idea of skepticism is not necessarily something that you're going to be using for every single decision of your life. You know, if you're trying to work out whether you want to eat the steak or the chicken... There's, there's no real place for scepticism, that it's just, you know, you eat whatever you want to eat. But may, maybe for some of the bigger ideas, if you're trying to make a decision between whether or not to vaccinate your child, then that's something that you want to really weigh up, uh, weigh up the evidence. But of course, it's not as easy as that, because if you get onto the internet, you can find heaps and heaps and heaps of information out there telling you not to vaccinate, telling you that it's dangerous. You can read articles of people saying, oh, it's been researched and it's been proven that vaccines cause autism. The, and that's one of the hardest aspects of it all, is that if you want to find evidence for a particular belief, you will be able to find evidence supporting that belief. The hard part is weighing up that evidence and actually looking at where the evidence, you know, the evidence comes from. But is this evidence a legitimate scientific investigation
0: well and, and even that one step further you're bringing my mind you mentioned ted talks there are a number of ted talks in the uh, medical area the scientific area that show that 80 percent of this medical research they really only had one study that was positive but the way the rules are in writing up the research they could then discount the other 40 that they did that didn't prove to be positive. And just report on the positive ones. so it's like okay, where can we put our trust in where the empirical data came from? We can't trust our own senses. Maybe we don't all feel that we can trust the scientific community at least in some areas.
1: Yeah you're absolutely right and, that, and that's one of those things that makes it so hard. like I said before, scientists are people and a lot of and I'm not trying to excuse this in any way but a lot of a lot of scientists are going to think well this is something that I think is true. I want it to be true so badly that I'm going to twist the evidence for it. And what you're talking about is cherry picking. You might run an experiment that you think is correct and it might work one out of a hundred times. So you then just show the example of that that one time um, that it worked. And as far as who do we put trust in, we have to put our trust just in the scientific process. We have to trust that if somebody performs a fraudulent study, then there are other people who are going to try to replicate that study and other people who are going to look into it more deeply and find those errors and report on those errors so that we can change the way we think about them. It, and it's, it's a very slow process. And there are often investigations going on where there are people who basically their jobs are to go and read medical research and actually look at how accurate they are and look at how correct they are. And unfortunately, what you're saying is true. There are a lot of cases where it turns out that they were wrong or that they lied about what they were doing or they lied to themselves in a way and sort of misinterpreted that data. It's really, really tricky. One thing that you can try to do is put your, um, sort of put your trust in the scientific consensus rather than individual, individual studies. If there are... 100 scientists and 99 of them are saying one thing and one of them is saying another chances are the 99 scientists are going to be correct there are always exceptions but in general when a scientific consensus leans towards a particular side of an issue that's what you may as well go with a uh, a current example would be the climate change debate which is something that we're having in australia right now and once upon a time climate change was a legitimate controversy you know, if you spoke to climate scientists, you might have fifty percent say yes, it's happening, and fifty percent say no, it, no, it's not happening. But now, as we've got more and more data on it, it's you know, it's more like ninety nine percent of climate scientists are saying it's happening. So, as non scientists, we we kind of just have to trust that what the consensus is saying is true. It doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case, but most of the time, we're going to be okay with that.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about where you've gone from beginning the club. So you started with the club. I want to just read one of the kids that do the podcast. They said, what got you into skepticism and doing a podcast about it? And he said, the murky world of YouTube, wherein I combated creationism and intelligent design, was my first experience with the skeptical community. This led to creating my own blog, then becoming a part of the Young Australian Skeptics, then helping to start up its podcast and finally coming to rule said podcast with a curiously pale iron fist.
1: Um, the Young Australian Skeptics is another organisation that I know a few people um, involved in, and one of my ex-students is involved in it.
0: So, is there that? that As a great question for me to ask, then is there different sects of skepticism among the world of skeptics?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, well actually, one of the biggest divides in skepticism um, sort of seems to be between the skeptics and the atheists, and it's a it's a bit of a controversy, really, where if you are a sceptic, must you be an atheist? And there are those who say, yes, if you're a sceptic, you have to be an atheist, absolutely, how could you not? And other people who say, no, if you're a sceptic, you don't have to be an atheist, but an agnostic would be a, uh, you know, would sort of be a more sensible position. Um, So sometimes there can be a bit of friction, a bit of friction between those. And there there are people that can be sceptical just about certain little areas. You might have somebody who says, I don't believe in ghosts, but I do believe in homeopathy, for example. You know, you might be sceptical about one area of your life and not sceptical about another area. You were talking earlier about sort of, you know, religious and non-religious people and their relationships. My wife is very religious. She's extremely religious. Um, But at the same time, my wife doesn't believe in psychics and she doesn't believe in ghosts and she doesn't believe in Reiki and homeopathy and all sorts of things.
0: And is she a sceptic?
1: Uh, I, I would say, with the with the exception of her religious beliefs, yes, she's uh, she's a skeptic. She's very skeptical.
0: And it seems to me that if you're aware of that line you're drawing, that you're saying, "All right, I'm a skeptic, and I'm going to look for empirical evidence, and I'm going to question, and I'm going to use critical thought, and in other areas, I am going to just go on pure faith and belief." But but with an awareness that you are making that distinction.
1: Yeah, yeah, that that that's right. And and you know, in my wife's case that's exactly exactly what she would be thinking. There's are some areas of her life where she's saying, No, you know, this is this is what I believe to be true, so this is this is what I'm gonna go with.
0: And you're saying sort of that a skeptic holds the door open a little bit for future evidence to change their minds, right? So maybe this is just an area where they've pushed the door open a little further while they wait.
1: Yeah, yeah, bats, maybe.
0: And so are there particular areas, we've just got a couple minutes left, are there particular areas for you, Adam, that you're most focused on in the, the general topics that a skeptic might be focused on as far as politics, religion, education, science, morality? Are there areas of applying skepticism that you feel are more important than others?
1: Uh, for me, education. I would say is by far um, the most important. Trying to get a bit of a sceptical mindset out into the community. I think the most important thing is just to, to help people and to give people the tools they need to really start to be able to question and look into things. And one tip, and, and this is something that I've come across when talking to people, is to think about what evidence, what would it take to change your mind? Now, if you're talking to somebody, and, and I use psychics as an example because it's a fairly easy example... Say to somebody, what evidence would it take to change your mind about your belief of psychics and then get people thinking about that? You know, I, and often people will just say, well, no amount of evidence. I, this is what I believe in and this is what I'm going to believe in until the day I die. Nothing's going to change my mind on that. And I think talking, talking to young people as well, just saying to young people, you know, are you sure that what you think is correct? You know, is there a chance that you can be wrong? And young, young people are great to discuss too with that because they, they don't have the emotional baggage that we do. We're often a lot more strongly linked into what we believe and we've spent a lot more time with our beliefs. So well, it's a lot harder and
0: often our tell. identity is linked to it as well, right? Our personal identity.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that,
0: that comes and up a lot in politics when you see someone will vote for someone who they don't agree with or believe in any of their positions but they identify with that personality or with that political party.
1: That's right. And young people are generally, you know, they're still in the process of forming their own identity. They haven't, in many cases, formed these really solid convictions yet. And it's not, you know, it's, it's not about manipulating children or going and trying to talk to them and tricking them into believing what you believe. It's just more about giving them those critical thinking skills and tools that's going to enable them to sort of filter what they're being told and to consider what they're being uh, being told, you know, doubt things. Say to a student, if a teacher tells you something that feels wrong to you, question that. Question the teacher. Go look into it yourself. You know, don't just take everything you're being told and everything you're reading and seeing as gospel truth.
0: Okay, so you've convinced me that skeptics are actually the most open minded group there are. <laughs> All right, my last question then. Are you a Star Wars fan?
1: Well, yeah, of course. All
0: right, and do you believe in the Force? <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> I wish. I, I hope that it's real.
0: <laughs> well, Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. It was wonderful speaking with you.
1: Thanks, Ellie. I had a good time as well.
0: This is KPI